The debates continue over the abrupt departure of American forces from Afghanistan just a year ago. It's a done deal, but it still rankles many veterans of the wars in Afghanistan and maybe to some extent Iraq. We get one view from the executive director of the Veterans Advocacy Group Mission Roll Call, Cole Lyle. Mr. Lyle, good to have you on. Thanks for having me on, Tom. Appreciate it. Tell us about Mission Roll Call itself a little bit. This is a group we haven't had on and among the many veterans advocacy groups. What, what's your specialty here? Yeah, Mission Roll Call is a 501c3, and our number one priority is veteran suicide prevention. Our second priority is access to health care and benefits. And then third priority is amplifying the voices of traditionally underserved veteran populations, rural veterans, tribal veterans, women veterans, any any sort of group that falls into that category. So Obviously, suicide is not necessarily caused by any one thing, but so we take a look at a lot of different aspects of, of veteran health care and benefit. We have the ability to poll. We have about 1.4 million members that we engage with, and we poll veterans directly about issues under consideration by Congress, the White House, the VA that may affect them so that we can give policymakers information about how veterans feel about policy under consideration. So it gives veterans kind of a direct voice, traditional advocacy organizations oftentimes, as you're aware, probably have the individual veterans voice filtered through local posts and organizations that goes to state conventions, national conventions, before it ultimately gets presented by their national headquarters to members of Congress. We can get as granular as zip codes. So if a specific member wants to know what veterans in their district are feeling about a particular piece of legislation, you know, we, we don't tend to talk about specific legislation. We talk about the policy, but we can give them a, a better idea of how veterans in their district or across the country sure. are thinking if it's a committee of jurisdiction. And you have polled your members on the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And again, as we said at the top, it's still pretty controversial. What did the poll reveal? Yeah, so this is actually why I came on board the organization is because last year I was already kind of seeing the negative mental health effects of the withdrawal in Afghanistan on the on the Marines that I served with. Um, had to personally talk down uh, three of them from suicide. So when I was offered this position, I, I certainly wanted to come on board because it was something, you know, suicide prevention that I've been working on for, for years in uh, D.C., so the, the poll we did last year just asked, has the withdrawal in Afghanistan negatively affected your, your mental health? And 75% said yes. We did a poll one year later and we said, how does the withdrawal from Afghanistan one year later impact the way you view America's legacy in the global war on terror? We polled, I think, right around 1,400 veterans uh, on that. And 65% of them said it negatively impacted the way they viewed America's legacy in the global war on terror. We did a subsequent poll that said, one year later, are you satisfied with the level of accountability amongst senior civilian and or military officials for the execution of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan? We got 3,100 veterans in this poll particularly, and 2,600 of them, or roughly 83%, Um, said no, that they were not satisfied with the level of accountability. We're speaking with Cole Lyle. He's executive director of the Veterans Advocacy Group Mission Roll Call. So there's really two implications here. One, generally, the members, as expressed in your survey, feel somewhat dismayed at what could be seen as a betrayal of the effort that they put in, difficult effort in Afghanistan. But then there is the mental health effect. Let's talk about the first one, the fact that policymakers have let them down. Anything you can really do to mitigate this at this point? 
Honestly, and that's that's what's kind of the kick in the pants about it is because y- you can't. Um, the only thing you can really do is going forward demand that policymakers that are committing us to, to conflicts abroad do so with a limited mandate with clear objectives to ensure that this kind of thing doesn't happen again. You know, there have been arguments that have said, oh, we should have gotten out 10 years earlier when President Biden and Vice President Biden argued for during the Obama surge debate. He was arguing for a small limited force. They're saying we should have done that. And he was right all along. But we hadn't, you know, killed bin Laden at that point. There were other people saying we should have gotten out when bin Laden left. And it was always this this line from uh, people that were executing the conflict, military officials that, that would say were, quote unquote, making progress. But they couldn't really elucidate what that meant specifically or how it was tied to our national security interests, vital national security interests, what have you. So I think the reason that it dismays so many veterans, uh, having spoken with hundreds of them myself, is they spent a lot of their personal time, less than 1% of the American population serves on active duty at any given time. 80% of veterans have an immediate family member that served. So you're looking at an all-volunteer force that really became a family business, where you had multiple repeat deployments, individual veterans and families bore an enormous burden deploying to Iraq and Afghanistan, and particularly in Afghanistan, for it to end the way it did. After so much service and sacrifice, it really just left a bad taste in people's mouths, particularly because not only of the way it ended, but we left behind not only hundreds of American citizens, but tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Afghan interpreters that put their lives on the line with us that we promised them they would have the ability to come back to the United States that we just abandoned. And that's, I think, more of what really makes it personally uh, so horrific for a lot of these veterans that served with these individuals Sure. And and the United States broke its promise. Yeah, those of us old enough to remember the Vietnam era directly, uh, this sounds very much like an echo of that. And then there's the mental health issue of the members. And do you feel that mm-hmm. there's the potential for a correlation between how they feel about this mentally and the effect on their mental health, as they've stated in the survey, and a possible uptick in suicides? Oh, I, I, I think that's kind of hard to determine for obvious reasons. But I, I certainly think that, that it tracks with what we know about how people feel on this particular issue and the fact that a lot of veterans, they, they, they're, they tie a lot of their, for better or for worse, their, their legacy, their self-worth to their service because it was a time in their lives that they were serving a cause higher than themselves or they thought they were serving a cause higher than themselves. They made great friends. They uh, made brothers and sisters for life. And then... You know, for something like this to happen, it makes them question, well, what was that all for? Like, I did get some benefits from my military service. You know, I got some very tangible benefits and I got some intangible benefits in those experiences and those friendships. But what were we doing to to serve that cause that was higher than ourselves? Like, what did that actually mean? At the time when we were on the ground, we were protecting local women. We were protecting little girls' rights to go to school. We were you know, increasing the prosperity of of Afghanistan and the Afghan people. We were keeping Afghanistan from becoming a safe haven for terrorists abroad. And we're already seeing, you know, ISIS-K, ISIS and Al-Qaeda back in Afghanistan one year later. So they're saying, what was this all for? Why did I spend so much time, energy and effort 
and sacrifice in this way for it to just end so horrifically and so horribly. That can have a pretty bad mental health effect. Cole Lyle is executive director of the Veterans Advocacy Group Mission Roll Call. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really 
sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together. Because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, And so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in this in this sense. Looking back, what what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. 
And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. 
This holiday, whether you're making a Baker's Simple Truth Turkey for 40 or a Murray's Baked Brie for two, Baker's has fast, fresh delivery and free pickup so you can make holiday meals that bring you all together to create memories that last. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone.